Anyhow, the books. Are you seeing the books? Everything you would want to read is right here. Feel it. Feels good, right? Now smell it. Nothing, nothing smells like that. I'm sorry, excuse me. Did I just see you smell that book? Dear Reader, a Jane Eyre podcast brought to you by the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Episode 2, The Silence and the Sound. Greetings and salutations to the second episode of Dear Reader, a limited series looking at the classic Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte through the lens of its varied and various interpretations. I have already looked at the source material, which was episode 1, and now I am about to begin looking at those different adaptations. There won't be any continuity for this show, but I do suggest maybe starting with episode one, especially if you've never actually read Jane Eyre, and then you can hop around to whatever interests you. I'm definitely going to be first judging each adaptation on its own merits, and especially those that are reimaginings or only refer to or pay homage to Jane Eyre. I'm not going to be spending a lot of time, and by a lot of time I mean hours, saying, well, this, this, and this happened, or didn't happen, uh, which is different from the uh, source material. That's just not what this show is about, and I think we can all agree that oftentimes adaptations are not one-to-one translations from the source material, so we're just going to have to get over that. I've set up almost a guide of what I'm going to be looking at when I judge it and I've already been amending it so I feel like it may be amended as this limited series goes on and as it reaches its end but just some of the things I'm going to be looking at to see whether it is a good adaptation of Jane Eyre or not I'm going to be looking at the spirit of the book uh, especially its themes its tone is it spooky gothic does it have romantic elements is Jane or if there's a stand-in for Jane relatable what is her personality or her moral aptitude is she making decisions like Jane Eyre would be making decisions or is she really going off and doing things that we wouldn't expect Jane Eyre to be doing now looking at moral aptitude I'm thinking about reverence faithfulness awareness of responsibility veracity and goodness so all of these things I think come to make to some degree come to make up the character of Jane Eyre so does that adaptation actually live up to that when we look at the childhood scenes are there any (laughs) if there aren't how do we understand what she has gone through and what type of person it has made her if there are childhood scenes 
who are the most important people within those scenes that have a direct effect or impact on Jane as she develops into her own human being? How are her relationships with those around her? What is the relationship between Jane and Edward or again those stand-ins? What is the conflict that tears them apart because they always, I think inevitably, will be separated so that they can come back together? Is that conflict believable? And can this adaptation stand alone or must you have read Jane Eyre in order to, in order to best appreciate it? So this episode, I'm going to be looking at silent films, two silent films in fact, and a radio play. I was actually really excited to get started with this because I've actually never watched a silent film and I still haven't. Oh dear listeners, I was dealt a blow. I had the plan. I was all set to go and then I thought surely this film will be available somewhere. Absolutely not. I have still picked these two Really, all of the silent films uh, are are difficult. There now, one of the two that I picked, I could have traveled to jolly old England and actually gone into the place that the vault, I suppose, that it is kept and watched it. But I did not do that. I don't think that the Fire and Water Podcast Network was going to give me money <laughs> for basically a stipend to do such a thing. So. I'm going to be creative with it. And then the other one was destroyed. So it's just not going to happen. But I do think that these two that I've picked are really interesting. I do still want to look at them. So what I'm going to do is I did research, found out as much as I could about them, often or mostly through AFI, and then also through some publications that were coming out at the time. So I'm going to talk about each of these adaptations. And then from the synopsis alone, which isn't very fair, but it's as much as we have or as much as I'm able to do, I'm going to judge it from that. I'm going to give a, a review, my thoughts of it, and then look to see if it fits what I just spoke of. So I'm first going to be looking at the American release of Jane Eyre, which came out in 1910. Now, however early this seems, it was actually not the first. The earliest known adaptation is actually a 1909 Italian silent film. But if you think about it, 1910, not very long after the publication of the book, which was in 1847. So you can kind of think of some more modern examples as well of when books come out and they become popular and then we have a film. Maybe even Dune, that would be a more recent thing. The credits for this film are as follows. Irma Taylor played Jane Eyre, Gloria Gallup, Georgiana Reed, Frank H. Crane as Lloyd Rochester, Marty Faust as Uncle Reed, Charles Compton as John Reed, Amelia Barleon as Mrs. Rochester, Marie Aline as Jane Eyre as a young girl, and then not given their role, but at least credited, we have Alphonse Ethier and William Garwood. The production credits, both the company of production and the distribution is Thanhauser Film Corporation. And the screenwriter is Lloyd F. Lonergan. And of course, it is based on the novel Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Here are some details that I got from AFI specifically about the cast and writer. So cast in the role of a young Jane Eyre was Marie Aline, soon to be known and famous as the Thanhauser Kid, and that was the, the production company 
of this film. Almost nothing is known about Gloria Gallup's role or work in the Thanhauser productions, but she is credited with the minor filler subject, The Cigars His Wife Brought, and this film as well. Frank H. Crane was an early leading man of the Thanhauser company and was already credited in four previous films by the company. Amelia Barleum was a minor actress at Thanhauser with more stage experience. It is unknown how many films she appeared in, but this is credited as her first and The Winter's Tale as her second and last. Charles Compton may have had his film career start in this Thanhauser production, but he was better known for his juvenile roles on the stage. Bowers credits Martin J. Faust as one of the most important actors in for Thanhauser in 1910 and 1911, but Faust's roles in productions often went uncredited. Both Irma Taylor and Alphonse Ethier were actors that appeared in Thanhauser Productions with few credits. And the last identified member of the cast is William Garwood, who was among the most important actors at Thanhauser. He joined the company in late 1909 and remained until 1911 before returning in 1912. And this is known as his first credited work with Thanhauser. There has been considerable debate over the identity of the film's director. Most commonly, the directional credit is given to Theodore Marston. The apparent origin of this error is from the American Film Index, 1908-1915. Film historian Q. David Bowers consulted one of the co-authors of the book, Gunnar Lundquist, and confirmed that the credit of Marston was an error. Theodore Marston worked with Pathé, Kinemacolor, Vitagraph, and other companies, but there's no record of Marston working with Thanhauser. This error has persisted in the following decade and in several publications. While the director of the film is not known, two Thanhauser directors are possible. Barry O'Neill was the stage name of Thomas J. McCarthy, who would direct many important Thanhauser pictures, including its first two-reeler, Romeo and Juliet, and I'll talk about what two-reeler is later, later on. Lloyd B. Carlton was the stage name of Carlton B. Little, a director who would stay with Thanhauser Company for a short time, moving to Biograph Company by the summer of 1910. Bowers does not attribute either the director for this particular production nor does Bowers credit a cameraman. Blair Smith was the first cameraman of the Thanhauser Company, but he was soon joined by Carl Louis or Lewis Gregory, who had years of experience as a still and motion picture photographer. And the role of the cameraman was uncredited in the 1910 productions. So then I looked at some articles in the moving world, uh, moving picture world, and this is almost like the internet, right? Where it gives us little tidbits as to what piece of the production the movie is in and who's going to be in it and things like that. So in April 30th, or on April 30th, 1910 of Moving Picture World, it announced that Thanhauser had completed Jane Eyre and the new studio claimed that the film would surpass its last big adaptation of a popular novel, St. Elmo, because Jane Eyre, quote, has been produced under better studio conditions and should show the advantages accruing from improved facilities. In the May 7th 
Moving Picture World. The review ran, the clever work of the latest American independent manufacturer has been the subject of general comment. We referred last week to the filming of a popular novel by Thanhauser Company, and this week we were invited to view an advanced copy of the film Jane Eyre. This story is very clearly told and is acted with a degree of perfection that would do credit to many older concerns. All except one scene in particular, which is supposed to show a fall from a horse. Oh boy, we know what that is. This could have been suggested far better than it has been reproduced, which looks simply like a clumsy dismount. But apart from this trivial blemish, the film is very good. There is an ailment known as caput augmenti, oh my goodness, Latin, which sometimes attacks grown-ups as well as precocious youngsters. And if more praise is bestowed on Mr. Thanhauser, he may succumb to flattery and be satisfied with the progress that he has made. But after all, there are many earmarks of inexperience and even his best work, and only time and careful attention to details will round out the quality of his product. This, we know, is his ambition to do. And that's the end of the quote. Two weeks later on... The 21st of May, Moving Picture World added this commentary, quote, In dramatic qualities, the players have succeeded in producing a satisfactory rendition. The most salient features of the book have been taken, and these have been so well reproduced that one scarcely misses the rest of the story. The acting is sympathetic and earnest, while the photographic qualities are quite up to the standard set in previous films of the same type from this house. Its reproductions of novels have been more than ordinarily successful, and one can't help believing that apart from the amusement thus afforded, the company is performing a distinct literary service for its patrons in so graphically and forcefully reproducing these excellent novels. So Jane Eyre was a single real film. It was approximately 1,000 feet long, which means that it was about 15 minutes long as a silent film. If it were a talkie, it would be a different length and a two-reeler would be slightly longer, not exactly 30 minutes, probably about 24 so just be aware of that it was released on may 6th 1910 publicity for the release of the film was handled by bert adler and was successful in generating trade interest and promised a better work than dan hauser's saint elmo as we see there were high expectations and it was picked up in subsequent articles in the moving picture world and the new york dramatic mirror in advance of its release the players in the production were credited for their work, which was rare and unusual at the time. And Edwin Thanhauser would later mark Jane Eyre as the point in which he became confident at the success of his company. The release actually saw the company suddenly having more orders than it could fill, and the laboratory had to work overtime to produce additional prints to meet the demand. This film helped secure the future of the Thanhauser Company, and reviewers were largely positive, with only minor criticism about the acting or photography, as we saw. Morning Telegraph said the production was excellent, save for the lack of emotion displayed over the death of Uncle Reed, which I guess there's a child acting there, but maybe also the family. Of course, talked about the, the moving picture world, those two reviews that they had, and... Unfortunately, this film is presumed lost, mainly because there was a fire at the Thanhauser studio. It burned down on January 13th, 1913, though it is unknown, 100%, whether Jane Eyre was incinerated in the event. Okay, so that's all that background. So this is the synopsis from... Moving Picture World, the 7th of May, 1910, that particular article. Okay. 
Here we go. Quote, Jane Eyre is left an orphan and penniless at the age of 14. She is adopted by her uncle, who has ample means of providing for her and who also loves her dearly. Her uncle's kin, however, consider her adoption an intrusion and do all in their power to prevent her becoming a member of the family. But her uncle insists on her remaining, and during his lifetime, she receives some degree of kindness and consideration. Unfortunately, Uncle Reed dies and leaves Jane without a friend in the world. She is sent to an orphan asylum by her unfeeling aunt. Five years later, she leaves the asylum to accept the position of governess to Lord Rochester's little niece. The child is the daughter of Rochester's dead brother. Her mother has become insane and is living in Lord Rochester's home under his protection. Jane is engaged by Lord Rochester's housekeeper during his absence from home, and her first meeting with her employer is both exciting and romantic. She is sitting, reading by the edge of the road when Lord Rochester rides up to his ancestral home. The sight of his huge dog coming upon her suddenly so startles Jane that she jumps to her feet, causing Lord Rochester's horse to shy and throw his rider. He injures his ankle and has to be assisted to remount by the, quote, little witch, as he calls her, who caused his accident. That same evening in his home, he is surprised to find that, quote, the little witch of his adventure is living in his house as his niece's governess. Jane's rich relations, the Reed family, visit Lord Rochester and persistently insult and humiliate Jane by treating her as a servant. Lord Rochester, however, is not blind to her sweetness nor to the cruelty of her cousin, who is trying to win Lord Rochester's hand and fortune. One evening, his maniac sister escapes from her nurse and sets fire to the room in which Lord Rochester has fallen asleep. He is saved from a horrible death by Jane. When next Jane's haughty aunt and cousins come to call upon Lord Rochester, they are just in time to be introduced to his bride, who is none other than the despised Jane Eyre. End quote. Remember that this was a one reel, so that synopsis probably gives every detail of that 15-minute silent film. So let me talk about this film as I envision it from that synopsis, and then of course I'll go through and, and see whether it is a worthy adaptation of Jane Eyre. There seems to be in that this adaptation more of an establishment of young Jane pre- orphanage than we are used to she does meet tragedy uh, she's not too young 14 which is older I think than oh no I'm doing what I said I was going to do but she is older than I think we are used to in the source material of course so she gets to live a bit of her life and we also get to see that she has a loving relationship with her pseudo father uncle reed so she does lose her parents there's tragedy there but she's taken in she's shown love she experiences love and then of course tragedy strikes again so at least we see more development and have i suppose normalcy quote unquote before shoved off to the orphanage there's no mention of helen so Uncle Reed seems to be probably the most important individual in her life at this point in time and the one to show her what love is. So this is something that's going to be a theme in this particular episode. Helen, I should have called this the Helen podcast because I'm realizing how important Helen actually is as I'm looking at these and experiencing these adaptations. So with no Helen here, the question that I will be asking throughout is – how does Jane understand love and learn love and to a certain extent also turn from Old Testament Jane to New Testament Jane? Here, 
it's definitely Uncle Reed. And by saying testament, I also, there's not much religion in here, which remember that as well when I get to the radio play. But Uncle Reed is the point person and I think the most important person in her life. So that's the main point there. With Uncle Reed dead, it's only logical that the film follow the plot of the novel after that. Just get back on track there and sends Jane to the orphanage and then later to Thornfield. So that's really the catalyst for everything changing in her life. It's interesting that the plot calls the first meeting between Jane and, or I should say the plot synopsis, right? The first meeting between Jane and Edward Romantic. I suppose it is a meet cute. She just happens to be there and then all of this hijinks happen. So yes, I suppose one could turn Jane Eyre into a rom-com. Who knows? That's probably what we're missing, isn't it? That sort of adaptation. I'm not sure how believable the romance is between Jane and Edward, given the short run time, given the plot synopsis that we have there. I don't know. 15 minutes, man, you gotta, and, and what, we lost potentially five minutes or so to her backstory, so that's hard, right? You've got just maybe a, a quarter of that time. It does seem like Rochester has a much better character overall than in the novel of course besides calling her the little witch but he he does call her something like that in the in the novel as well that she has bewitched his horse if you remember so if Adele or whatever the child's name is we that that was not in the plot synopsis if Adele is the daughter of Edward's dead brother that means that potentially Edward did not sleep his way through Europe Taking a de- so there, there's a positive aspect. So I'm kind of going through why he seems a bit better in this film than in the novel. He takes Adele's mother in, and this seems more of a kindness than an act of shame or resentment or uh, compulsion, right? Because he has to do that. It seems like a, there might be, a, you know, love for his brother and maybe compassion for Adele's mother. It's unknown to what extent people know about the mad woman in the attic. I mean, they certainly do by the end, of course, but there's not as much. It seems like there's not as much hiding necessarily. They simplified the plot by having the reeds being the insulting party so we don't have the Ingrams and that whole party coming out. We make them the primary antagonists and there really seems to be no redemption for them. Whereas in the source material, we (laughs) kind of want to be against them and they do get their comeuppance if you think about it in terms of John and what happens to him and that the aunt is not well and things like that but Jane does forgive them but here I don't know I don't it doesn't seem like we get that well it does seem cathartic when they return for sure Edward again is portrayed positively he probably is listening to what they say the insults and things that they say about Jane but as the plot synopsis says he knows Jane for who she is and then the reeds get their comeuppance the catharsis is right there when they return to see Jane married. I don't know why they feel they have the right to come calling at Thornfield. I suppose it's because one of the cousins wants to marry Edward. It's probably greed. Who knows if, you know, John went the way of the prodigal and spent all the, the money. But it's certainly not familial motivations. Maybe in the beginning, like, oh, Jane, we're here to visit you. And then they return. But it's a, it's a bit bizarre. 
I'm not sure of the transition from employee to wife, but in 15 minutes, there's a lot of pressure to make that romance believable, as I sort of question above, and probably a lot of heat, pun intended, comes from when Edward is nearly killed by his sister-in-law. So that might be like a catalyst for that romance to really hit its stride, and then I guess there's they get married in off panel land which you know that I I never liked so how does this fare as an adaptation of Jane Eyre if I'm going through all of these things tone spookiness I don't know I can't answer that I think without having seen it and it a lot of it comes from the mad woman in the attic and I don't know how much time they show that or how in the dark Jane is of all of this because a lot of it is her mind playing tricks on her and also being very paranoid so I don't know is Jane relatable I think especially I'm intrigued just giving more time to the childhood aspect and again having love in her life and how hard it would be to lose the parents or you find someone becoming attached to that person losing them now you're in this bad situation so I think she's still young Jane is relatable there's not as much spoken of with older Jane so I don't know about that and then her choices if I go through her moral aptitude I have trouble because there's not much discussion there's not any discussion on religion so I'm not really sure about that the fact that she saves her uh, master I'll call him I think there's that faithfulness there that she takes care of her ward I think we get to see there veracity and goodness I think that's hand in hand with who Jane is and we see that through Edward understanding her goodness and seeing that I don't know the big question is of course was there a time when there was some suspicious activity going on and he wanted to marry her and she had to make that decision and cut ties that is a really crucial moment and that's really for me what determines whether a Jane or Jane Standen is spot on or not So childhood scenes, I think we saw that that, while there wasn't a Helen, I think Uncle Reed played that part. Her relationships around her, hard for me to to gather. I mean, all makes sense. I don't know what her relationship is with Mrs. Fairfax. Edward, is the romance believable? I don't know. (laughs) And I, I think the only one we can say for sure makes sense is her relationship with her Reed family relations and that seems bad just like it generally is conflict and then adaptation is standalone must you have read so that's I guess the question uh, can this stand alone do you have to have read Jane Eyre and given the plot synopsis I feel like it can stand alone there's not much I mean some of these things of course will lead you astray into believing that these actually happened but I think you get a sense of what Jane Eyre is my only question really is that relationship who knows about the mad woman does Jane have suspicions of something weird going on in the house and then is there a a moment where she has to give Edward up so those would be the things so I think it can stand alone I think you would be fine watching it and I think more or less I would agree that it's it's a pretty good adaptation especially for 15 minutes 
there are some things I would, you know, disagree with. But if you're cutting time, that's, I mean, we didn't even get to Sinjin. There's no point. There's not enough time for to do that. I mean, this is a very watered-down adaptation of Jane Eyre. But for the most part, I think you, you get to see what it actually is. So it has the spirit of Jane Eyre, if not the law of Jane Eyre. Okay, next up is Woman and Wife, a.k.a. The Lifted Cross. And this came out in 1918. What I looked at was from the Exhibitor's Herald from 1917 to 1918, and specifically the February 9th, 1918 date. The review from that particular issue was, quote, Woman and Wife, adapted from the book Jane Eyre, is a worthy addition to Select's list of features. There was fine story material in the book, and the screen version is plausible and interesting throughout. The story has been superbly screened with appropriate and picturesque settings. The work of Alice Brady is flawless. She plays the part of Jane Eyre with a fineness of understanding and sympathy that makes the book character live again on the screen, and the spectator is forced to feel for her. There is no striving for a theatrical effect. Her work is straightforward and sincere. The supporting cast, too, is a good one, each giving intelligent interpretations of the various roles. Woman and wife deserves a very high rating, end quote. So as a whole, then they went through here, excellent, story, gripping, star, versatile, support, very good, settings, appropriate, and photography, clear. Like many American films of the time, Woman and Wife was subject to cuts by city and state film censorship boards. For example, the Chicago Board of Censors required a cut in real one of the first scenes of the woman drinking. Heaven forbid. I assume the first scenes of the, I wonder if it's Aunt Reed, I don't know. The film survives in an incomplete state at the BFI National Film and Television Archive in Berkhamsted, UK. So again, the Fire and Water Network are not going to send me over there to watch it. Woman and Wife, aka The Lifted Cross, was released in January 1918. It was five reels in length. So they had a bit of a longer runtime there. So let's say about 75 if they were each 15 minutes, but we kind of shave off maybe five each. So maybe an hour to an hour and five minutes or so. Alice Brady played Jane Eyre. Elliot Dexter played Edward Rochester. Helen Green played Therese or Therese, whoever she is. Helen, actually, I do. No, I don't know who that is. Helen Lindroth. Oh, no, I don't know. Helen Lindroth played Grace Poole. Victor Benoit plays Raoul Dakin, or Dakin, sorry, which we'll get to that. And Leonora Morgan plays Valerie Rochester. Hmm. Select Pictures Corp. was a production company and distribution company. The director was Edward Jose, writer Paul West, and photography Ben Struckman. Of course, we know that it was based off of Jane Eyre. So... Let's get into the synopsis. Jane, and this is also from AFI. Jane Eyre, a spirited little orphan, is sent to a boarding school by her heartless aunt, but she soon finds love among her friends and teachers. Years, oh, Therese might be Helen. 
Years later, sorry, years later, Jane obtains a position as governess to the young daughter of Edward Rochester, a wealthy widower. The two fall in love and become engaged, but Edward is disturbed one day by the arrival of Raoul de Keen. Raoul, it always makes me think of Phantom of the Opera. His wife's brother with a mysteriously veiled woman recognizing that veiled woman as his mad wife valerie whom his mother had years before reported dead edward locks the unfortunate woman in a tower while he tries to have the marriage annulled having learned that he is free to marry jane edward proceeds with the wedding but on the night of the ceremony valerie bursts into the room in a frenzy as jane sadly prepares to depart valerie dashes into the woods and drowns herself in a lake whereupon jane returns to marry edward okay wow where to begin with this one young jane's tale seems accurate to the source material but there's no taste of love from her family i don't even know if she had an uncle reed and that's really hard but the good news is she does find it at the orphanage. So I think love, finding love, Jane, young Jane finding love somewhere, experiencing it somewhere, is the change that she needs to go from this, I don't know, stubborn and really tough young woman to someone who is still tough, still stubborn, but also I think gives more grace to people than young Jane does. So at least we have that bit. A probably another short runtime, though a bit longer than we saw in 1910. The romance from this plot synopsis feels really rushed, more so, I think, than the previous film, even though I, I suppose they have more time together. I mean, they fall in love and become engaged almost immediately in the plot synopsis, so I, I don't really know. There's no tale of the party, so maybe it's just the two of them having nightly conversations, so it, it makes sense. I'm not sure about the Dakin or Dakin Dakin change, but I wonder if it had anything to do with racism. So the reason why I say this is mainly because of this name change from Mason and even well, I'll get to the Valerie name change as well. But Dakin or Dakin Dakin. If it's French, but anyways, this was a family name that is found. Now it is, it's a French name. However, they're in the UK, they're in Scotland, the US and Canada, and mostly found in those places between 1840 and 1920. So that kind of, okay, that makes sense. So we're having a pretty, let's just say white family name being used here whereas the masons you think of mason you don't necessarily think it might be a family that is of another ethnicity however remember that bertha is someone that is that came from spanish town jamaica and also remember that this film's being made in 1918. So, yes, racism. So I feel like perhaps, because otherwise, why change that? And so I feel like maybe let's take another name that is really home to the UK and whiteness. And let's try to get away from any problems we may have that Edward married a black woman, basically. And then, of course, we get to, to Valerie. I don't know. <laughs> necessarily why there are names changed beyond that but Bertha is a pretty 
unattractive name and it's almost purposely done so, uh, you know, maybe because of racism on the part of Charlotte. But Valerie, now you have this white family name. It all sounds very attractive. The only thing that's unattractive about her, of course, is her madness. So the reveal of (laughs) the brother coming, there's a veiled woman, the veiled woman and his wife. So it seems exceptionally dramatic. I have many questions. Where was Edward when his wife reportedly died? Where was Edward when his wife reportedly died? Her brother was taking care of her. Why is he returning now? It might be money related. I don't know. Did Edward's mother lie to Edward to help or to harm? Did she know she was lying? I don't know. I have so many questions. And they're not going to be answered unless someone that is listening to this show has actually watched this film. I have mixed feelings on whether we should have sympathy for Edward or maybe even empathy or not. I don't have enough information about his marriage, the lies, the revelation, but it sure is pretty sketchy that he locks the woman in a tower so he can marry another person slash get that marriage annulled. So basically doing what he did in the novel, but in the novel, he never actually intended to marry again. He was sleeping around, but he's like, well, I've got this burden to deal with. She's going to stay up there. And here he's like, I've got Jane. This other person came. I've got to get rid of her. So the intentions make the impact a bit poorer than in the source material. So I guess if he got the marriage annulled, he would suddenly be free to marry Jane. The synopsis is a bit strange how it phrases it, that he is having learned that he is free to marry Jane. So I guess the annulment went through. But what happened to the brother? How aware is Jane of all this situation? I suppose enough that she's actually planning on leaving Edward. So we do know that. I do have a question, of course, about annulments and annulments at that particular time I think the only source of knowledge I have on annulments is is when people get drunk and get married in Las Vegas and then try to get that annulled I'm a bit I don't even know if annulment would exist so really at this particular time English law is probably going to tell us that when a woman was married right she became in a sense her husband's property Until the 1857 Matrimonial Causes Act, it was essentially impossible to obtain a divorce, no matter how bad the marriage or how cruel one's husband. So I don't know that an annulment was possible, frankly. If annulment were possible, Charlotte Bronte would have written that in the source material. So now let me think about annulment in 1918 rather than 1847. This might be something that I have to look at a bit more. But one reason potentially that the annulment would have been allowed is the fact that she was not with all of her faculties. She meaning Valerie. Otherwise, fraud, deceit, definitely not bigamy. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm a bit confused about this whole thing. But hey, you know, he tried to get it. I guess maybe it worked. I don't know. I don't think it worked, even though he thinks he must have sent it forward and he got all happy. He's like, "Okay, I sent off my paperwork, Jane. We're going to get married. And Jane is probably saying, I can't marry you until the paperwork comes back with the stamp of approval. And then it probably gets sent back. And you're like, I'm so sorry. I've denied your annulment. And then she's like, bye, Edward. I've got to get out of here. 
So that's what I imagine from a film I've not seen. Well, okay. So then <sighs> Valerie pulls an Ophelia, one of my least favorite Shakespearean females, and drowns herself. I am not sure of the motivation there. And I don't think one can just say because she's mad. Uh, she doesn't even go out with an attempted murder charge. I mean, yeah, try to go after your husband there before you do that. Is her heart broken? Does she, nah, I was going to say, does she want to spite Edward? But this would be like, yeah, this is great. You know, I don't have to worry about this whole thing. So I'm really not sure why she does that. I don't know if Jane witnessed the drowning. Was she actually there? Did she like run past her? Does Valerie run past Jane? I mean, if this, if she did, if Valerie ran past Jane, I imagine Jane would run after her and try to stop it because that's just who Jane is. Given the synopsis, which isn't too fair, of course, <laughs> it seems like woman and wife is, or the lifted cross, is more of an Edward story. So I'm, I'm not sure. Again, it's not fair, but it just seems like a lot of Rochester and all the drama is surrounding him. Okay, so let's look at how it potentially shapes up. Okay, Spirit of the Book, themes, spooky, hmm... I don't know if I can tell. I don't know if I can tell. I forgot about the other spooky theme, of course, is when young Jane is in the house in the red room and everything. The tone and, yeah, I just don't think that I can say. Everything's really out in the open. Everyone knows about everything. So when talking about Valerie, so I just don't think so. Is Jane relatable? You know, again, hard to say. The romance, very fiery. Don't get a, a good sense of who Jane is from the synopsis, so I'm not really sure I can tell. I think moral aptitude-wise, we at least have, I think, her goodness and her awareness of responsibility and her veracity and the, in the fact that she was going to leave Rochester. She was on the precipice. If she ended up trying to stop Valerie, then I think that that is even more powerful, that that was, uh, is definitely Jane. But as far as I can tell, I mean, I don't know maybe childhood scenes we find out that she's not loved with the reeds and she's loved in the orphanage so she experiences love she learns from that so i think that's pretty good relationships with those around her you can't really tell there's no mention of fairfax there's no mention of an adele or an adele stand-in so i don't know jane and edward fall in love very quickly i'm not sure what sorts of things keep them apart if it's very rushed is it believable? I can't tell. The conflict that tears them apart, of course, is believable. We know that it's Valerie and this pre-established marriage and the annulment that probably doesn't work as far as I'm concerned. And that makes sense. And can this adaptation stand alone or must you have read Jane Eyre? This adaptation could stand alone. It seems really dramatic, and I wish I could see it, actually, but it lies to you. So if you're looking for an adaptation that has the spirit of Jane, well, it definitely doesn't have the law of Jane. The spirit of Jane? Ooh, it's, it's close. I don't know. It's so far off that I'd be scratching my head, so I don't know. But I would love to see this because it just seems full of drama. Whew. Okay. I think, you know, I think that's it. That's as much as I could do with not having seen these films, which I regret. 
But it was kind of fun to fill in the gaps and things. But as I said, I have seen the second part. So it's time for a break. When I return, I'm going to be looking at or listening to the 1948 radio play, which I actually did listen to. (laughs) See you guys soon. It's Citizen Kane Minute, hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a collection of special guests. Citizen Kane Minute will examine the greatest film of all time, five minutes at a time. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name is Jane Eyre. I was born in 1820, a time of harsh changes in England. Money and position were all that mattered. Charity was a cold and disagreeable word, and religion too often merely a mask to cover bigotry and meanness. As a child, I had no one, only an aunt. I cannot remember that even once did she speak a single word of kindness to me. When I was ten, she sent me away to school to a place called Lowood. What do you want? I am the new girl, sir. Jane Eyre. You are aware of my identity, Eyre? They told me you are Mr. Brocklehurst, sir. That is correct. I am the supervisor of this institution. Institution, sir? Did I give you leave to question me? No, sir. Perhaps the word institution annoys you. Excuse me, sir. I thought this was a school. Lowood is a refuge, Eyre. A refuge for paupers and orphans who, but for these portals, are without homes... Here we give everything. In return, we demand nothing short of absolute obedience and humility. I have tried to be a good girl, sir. You have tried only to torment your poor aunt. From what she told, and from what is readily observed, you're a wicked and worthless child. That isn't so. In all the earth, there is no sight so terrible as a wicked child. But I promise, all wickedness will be driven from you here. Yeah. Yes, sir? Get to your knees. We shall pray together for the salvation of your soul. That was my introduction to Lowood. It was like a prison, dark and cold, but never so dark nor cold as Mr. Brocklehurst. His hand reached everywhere through those somber walls and in the guise of Christian charity tormented body and soul alike. Welcome back. Okay, so this part... I am confident about since I actually did listen to the radio play a couple times. And if you're interested in listening to this particular radio play, I've actually placed a link to it in the show notes. So be sure to check it out. Pretty easy to find on YouTube. Now, I chose the Lux Radio Theater radio play that came out on June 14th, 1948. And there were several different radio plays that you could actually choose from with Jane Eyre. There have been many, but I, well, there was one in particular that I felt like, well, I'm going to be watching that anyway, so I don't need to listen to it. And I am a fan of Ingrid Bergman, and that is why I decided to go with this one. So, Ingrid Bergman plays Jane. Robert Montgomery is Edward. Janet Scott is Mrs. Fairfax. Herbert Butterfield is Mr. Brocklehurst, and Frances Robinson is Blanche, and then there are several other cast members that they name at the end, 
but no indication as to who might be who. But we have Marlene Ames, William John Stone, Ann Carter, Stanley Waxman, Gloria Gordon, Regina Wallace, Norman Field, and Martha Wentworth. And the music was directed by Louis Silvers. Now, these were hour-long radio programs that were actually performed before live studio audiences, and you you can actually hear coughing. (laughs) And once they announce what the next radio play is going to be, people gasp and are super excited about it. They usually choose to adapt a popular film or a Broadway play. There are live commercials in between the acts. And then it is sponsored by... The manufacturer Lever Brothers, who made Lux brand soap and detergent. And each of these radio plays would be hosted by William Keeley. This particular radio play is broken into several acts. We have Jane as a child, only at Lowood School, with a passing reference to the Reeds. Then, after Lowood, she quickly goes off and becomes a governess. The majority of the time is actually spent. At Thornfield, the mysterious madwoman in the attic is present. Jane and Rochester do fall in love. They almost get married, but the revelation comes about, as it always does. Jane actually runs back to Lowood School, and then she is beckoned back to Thornfield after a tragic event. So that's basically what happens here in this radio play. The intro of this radio play certainly seems like it's from a 1948 lens. Religion masks bigotry, which I thought was interesting. Charity, a dirty word. So these were things that Jane drops there. I actually wanted to figure out why they would put religion in such a negative light. Remember that in the source material, Jane Eyre gives you a well-rounded idea of religion and gives you a perspective of three different people, four really, but three religious representatives to show you different aspects, positive and negative, of Christianity. But here, they sort of set the groundwork that religion isn't the best. And so I actually went to, uh, I wanted to look up what religiosity was in the 40s. I was a bit shocked to to see that actually it, it wasn't as high as you would think. It's about the same level as it is today. I got this off of religionnews.com. So coming out of World War II, not very religious. The war, which... I think is counterintuitive, right? You would expect people to return to religion. But straight after that, the war just put a halt on on so many things that would increase religiosity, particularly American procreation. And so it took a little while to, to gain back in steam. Churches, like other organizations, were just slowed down by the drain on resources and volunteers during the war. But the post-war years, as I said, turned this around. The economy improved, the baby boom ensued, and then religion grew. And I think also a sense of finding religion in the trenches as well and bringing that back. And then the 50s really brought a rise of religiosity due to the threat of communism and atheism. So even though we're a couple years post-World War II with this radio play, I think we've not yet seen that 
religiosity really hit its stride and start to increase in the late 40s. And yeah, so just an interesting, (laughs) right off the top of the hour, putting that down there. There's not much development of Jane as a child. There's no Mrs. Reed. Mrs. Reed appears really in name only. There's more of Brocklehurst, a great deal in fact. And he even returns in place of the Rivers family. So Brocklehurst is really the go-to guy. Perhaps you could consider him an antagonist. He, One of the quotes he says is, you have no talents, your looks are insignificant because he offers her a position at the institution at Lowood and she turns him down so basically he's like you're ungrateful how dare you turn me down if you have lots of Brocklehurst and no Helen that means again that you're showing all the negative aspects of religion and none of the good true and beautiful aspects and then if you don't go to the rivers you don't have the strong faith aspects You don't have a show of the missionary life or people who want to be a missionary. Jane doesn't find a family and the potential for love in that avenue. And her return to Lowood makes her situation worse. I mean, she leaves Thornfield at a low and then she's got to go back to this guy who basically says, I told you so. And you can tell even in that short time that she's back at Lowood that she is not having a good time. Even someone reaches out to her and is like, you're not in a good way. Jane is the narrator, which I think makes sense. I'm glad that they did it that way and that we didn't have, I don't know, Mr. Keeley be the narrator because, of course, Jane is the narrator in the actual source material. But there are times that events occurred where Jane is not present. There's no narration, but you've got people talking to each other without Jane. And this serves to give development to other characters. We see this a couple times most prominently inside the attic with Mason and Edward while Jane goes to seek the doctor and then Edward telling Blanche off, which is actually a really funny scene. On the one hand, this is good that we get to see inside without Jane having to be there, but it does eliminate some of the mystery and the audience being on the same level of understanding or not, as the case may be, as Jane. And that's part of the relatability of Jane is that we don't know what's going on, just like Jane doesn't know what's going on. I wonder how that would have played with a radio, a live radio play. So there is no Helen, as I mentioned before. She's, I would say, conspicuously absent. And this is something that I mentioned in the first part the importance of Helen, and really two questions, well, multiple questions for this section here, but who is Jane Eyre without Helen, and what is the novel Jane Eyre without Helen? I've recognized, just by listening to this play in particular, even though the two silent films, of course, also didn't have Helen, Well, we don't know about woman and wife because we do know that she finds love there or she is loved by friends and teachers at Lowood. But, man, I've realized how important Helen is because without Helen, Jane, her life is just tragedy upon tragedy and there's no love there for her until she potentially gets to Thornfield 
and she sees kindness from Mrs. Fairfax. She sees this gruff exterior from Edward, and then later on there's a development of love. But why even have any sort of optimism or positivity if you have no Helen coming, you know, you have no blip in your life to show that, oh, love is possible. And also, depending on what her upbringing was, if she's still that intractable child, right? Or the child that really doesn't give people a second chance and and demands justice. How how do you turn that around without someone to to teach you and show you the way? It's really hard, I think. Someone's got to be there. I also started to think about just love in general and how how do we know how to love, who teaches us how to love, and if we're not surrounded by anyone who loves us, will we ever even learn how to love? And that was something that I actually sent out over the Twitterverse to see if, you know, what comments and things like that. And people sent back various examples, of course. In nature, you have just that that instinct, that motherly instinct. Of course, we see cute pet videos of maybe a cat who loses her litter ends up adopting baby ducklings or something like that and then other people may say that they look for other people if they were never surrounded by love they look for models or examples of love outside of their own life to see how that is and if you're christian if you have that religion behind you I would say specifically Christianity. I can't really speak about the tenets of other religions, so I'll just speak what I know. But innately, we know how to love uh, just because we know that there's some someone out there, you know, the creator or Jesus that loves us. But it's hard sometimes because we have this feeling inside of us that we know what we're supposed to do. But if people are, are pounding us down and we have no outlet for that, where does that go? So I think there this is a mark against this particular radio play in my opinion if only because you don't get to see Jane develop as a child even if we don't have the reads and we just hear a line that it was it was a house that had no love in it or was an unloving house then having Helen there I think and showing how she could be loved because she wasn't even loved in Lowood it was a bad situation would turn it around. So as is, we're, I'm just going in and, and really, it's a bunch of bad stuff happening to Jane. I don't really know what her character is coming out of Lowood or even, well, yeah, I'll just say that, coming out of Lowood, why we should do anything more than feel sorry for her rather than champion her as a feminist character and a, a strong character that can overcome many things because she overcomes it in the sense of she makes it out of there but is is that it? Is that really what we want from our Jane Eyre or Jane Eyre stand-ins? I'm not convinced in the Edward Jane love story. I think that it was better the second time that I listened, but I don't know. It's just such a quick leap to it, which is really what I'm finding with these adaptations. There's not, as you know, this novel is long, so there's a bit of a slow burn, and you get to see their interactions and everything, but I don't know. Once the love is there, it's believable. Once they sort of cross that bridge and there's that proposal, you can see them, but (laughs) I don't know. It just doesn't have that, that build, and I'm just analyzing Edward's motivations and his actions, and 
then of course Blanche gets in the way. So it's just hard to develop that romance. I think that's been the sticking point so far with these adaptations. They do, of course, have the key quote slash scene of the proposal, and I think that's really maybe the only one scene that was closely quoting the source material, which I enjoyed. My guests have gone, Jane. All gone. And we are alone again. I will be leaving too, Mr. Rochester. Soon to forget me. I will never forget... forget you. You know that. But I see the necessity of going. It's like looking on the necessity of death... Where do you see that necessity? In your bride. My bride? I have no bride. But you will have. Yes, I will. I will. So you think I could stay here to become nothing to you? Do you think because I'm... I'm poor and obscure and plain that I'm soulless and heartless? I have as much soul as you and fully as much heart. And if God had gifted me with wealth and beauty, I shouldn't have made it as difficult for you to leave me as it is now for me to leave you. Oh, there... There. I've spoken my heart. Now let me go. Jane. Jane, you strange, you almost unearthly thing. You that I love as my own flesh. Don't mock I have no love for Blanche. It's you I want. Answer me, Jane. Quickly. Say, Edward, I'll marry you. Say it. Say it, Jane. Say, Edward, I'll marry you. Edward, I'll marry you. God forgive me. Edward. God forgive me. I liked the music and the sound effects. I think it adds to the gothic aspect. It's sinister. The tone is foreboding, beginning with Bertha's laughter, and then the setting and tone are just also well done, albeit short, because you only have an hour and less than that because you do have advertisements as well. Adele is cast well, as well as really written well, and I enjoyed (laughs) just her, you know, her positivity and being a fun kid. And I, there was one moment that I laughed because she speaks about Rochester as if he were Batman. Listen to this. I spent all the next day with Adele, a beautiful and charming child. Like myself, she too was an orphan, and she won me over so quickly. That night, as I was making her ready for bed, she showed me one of her dolls. This is Mimi, Mademoiselle. Mm, such a beautiful dress she has, Adele. Mama had it dressed like that. It is a dancing dress, Mademoiselle. Mama was a beautiful dancer. I also can dance. Do you wish me to dance for you? Now, Adele? This very moment? Now you speak like Monsieur Rochester. For him, it is never the right moment. Oh, does that make you sad, Adele? Sometimes, Mademoiselle. I love dancing. I should like it, too. A great many gentlemen and ladies came to see Mama dance. Where? Where was that? In Paris. But when Mama had to go to heaven, then Mr. Rochester came and brought me here. Mademoiselle, do you like Monsieur Rochester? I have not yet met him. That big, huge chair downstairs, that is his chair. He sits in it and stares into the fire and frowns. But I'm sure he's very kind to you. Oh, sometimes he brings me beautiful presents. But when he is angry, that is terrible. 
Oh. But do not be concerned, mademoiselle. Tonight, I shall pray to God to make him be polite to you. So you will stay with me forever. Thank you, Adele. Thank you. At one point, Jane asks Mrs. Fairfax a good question as to why Rochester deserves an allowance of poor humor or personality. And Fairfax responds, it's because of what he's gone through, which I think is a good lesson in empathy, though it doesn't necessarily excuse his behavior, which is something that Jane addresses in the scene afterwards when he isn't kind to Adele. So this is, I, I see again, if I look at this scene, I don't think that Jane is in love with Edward at this point in time, but trying to figure it out. But this is, <laughs> yes, Call somebody out for sure, but also understand that people may be going through things that we may not understand. And so I try to allow them to have maybe a bad time when I encounter people in the real world, right? This is something that we we should try to do, that uh, they could just be having a bad day. But also recognize that I'm a human being or someone else is a human being, so they also deserve to be spoken to better and respected. So I did appreciate that particular scene, and especially Adele, who's really young and loves Rochester. Oh, you know what? I just had a thought that she's very much a foil to, maybe not a foil necessarily, but I would say that Jane, especially in this adaptation, I'd have to think about the source material, very much sees, well... Probably the source material as well. I never thought about this before. Jane sees herself in Adele probably a great deal as an orphan child just seeking love. And so here Adele has a potential of love. Jane is probably why she's really giving her all of that so that she won't, that Adele won't have that upbringing that Jane herself had. And so if Adele doesn't have that agency to talk back and, and demand respect and love from Rochester, then Jane is going to act on her behalf. I think this point is proven because Jane says that she's attracted to the the loveless and friendless when it is deserved. So Jane, I think, in this adaptation is her own Helen, albeit a bit more caustic, I would say. But, you know, again, where did where did that model behavior come from? But I, I suppose it just came from poor examples. So she saw these negative examples of love and her own poor life experience, and she decided to grow beyond that and live beyond that and do better and show all those other people up by being what they didn't allow her to be. As I mentioned before, there is a scene, an insightful scene in terms of, I guess, how Blanche and Rochester, that relationship or lack thereof, blew up. And I call it a showdown. But it does crack me up because she says, leave me at once. And it's his estate. And I will play that for you here just so you can get a laugh at it as well. You've seen it all, Blanche. The fields, the forests, and now the garden. Oh, it's such a beautiful place, your Thornfield. As a dungeon, it serves its purpose. Dungeon? It's a paradise. A haven. A haven of peace and love. Who's talking of love? Distraction is what a man needs. Distraction to keep him from peering too closely into the mysteries of his heart. 
I sometimes wonder if you have a heart, Edward. Have I ever said anything to make you believe I have? Oh, Edward, are you never serious? Never, more than at this moment, except perhaps when I'm eating my dinner. Really, you can be so revoltingly coarse at times. Can I ever be anything else? Would I have come to Thornfield if I thought you couldn't? Well, now we have something to consider. First, Mr. Rochester is revoltingly coarse and ugly as sin. Edward, I Secondly, never... he's extremely careful never to talk of love or marriage. However, and this is the third point, the Ingrams are somewhat impoverished, whereas the revolting Mr. Rochester has an assured income of 8,000 pounds a year. Edward! Now, in view of all this, what attitude shall Miss Blanche be expected to take? From what I know of the world, I'd surmise she'd ignore the coarseness, etc., etc., until such time as Mr. Rochester is safely hooked. How dare you? Now, now, no horseplay. I've never been so insulted in my life. Blanche, I have just paid you the enormous compliment of being completely honest. You're a bore and a cur. Leave me at once. As I said in my brief synopsis, which I didn't even call synopsis, things turn out as they do in the source material where Jane and Edward are about to marry. Mason comes back, reveals Bertha's in the attic. Edward brings everyone back in a jolly good little field trip and shows the mad woman. Jane runs off, goes back to Lowood, which is just not a good situation. I didn't like that at all. So we cut out the rivers again and again only have a negative example of religion. And... Then Jane is beckoned back to Thornfield, which is pretty damaged, and she ends up marrying Rochester and has a nice little narration at the end, which mirrors very much what happens in the novel, that they marry, have a child, and he gains his sight back a bit more. There's a message at the end of the radio play for refugees with the International Rescue and Relief Committee, and Ingrid and Robert were both members, and this agency or committee provided for displaced people of Europe and helped those fighting for democracy. And then a message mentioning the Republican Convention, and Lux had to relinquish the time slot for next week, which I thought, huh, does that mean that Lux Radio is politically affiliated? But I figured, no. A convention is pretty important, whatever side it is. So I think it's just what happened. I would say, now overall, I would say that it was a great production with solid acting. I mean, this is why I chose it. And definitely Bergman is the standout. But the little girl who played Adele, I thought, was also really good. So let's see how it stands up to how I've been judging these adaptations. Does it have the spirit of the book, the tone, the themes? Is it spooky? I think so, yes. I think be much better than we saw with these silent films. I think it really has, like I said, sinister foreboding. The music, all of that really adds in. The laughing, you don't know what's going on, the mysterious aspect. And then overall, I think you get a good sense of, of the book. Is Jane relatable? I don't think I would say yes. She's not as relatable as I would say she is in the book. And the reason why is because, again, she gets hit multiple times with bad things happening to her, and I just feel sorry for her. And yes, she has these brilliant and strong moments, but they're few and far between. Personality, moral aptitude, as I've talked about, reverence, faithfulness, responsibility, veracity, and goodness. Uh, I would say she has goodness and veracity and responsibility. She does leave Edward, right? Uh, Faithfulness, at least to a 
Adele, if not slightly to Edward. I forgot that uh, the horse interaction happened, <laughs> which was fun. So I'm sure it's better than what they said that one silent film where he, it looks like he just, it was a clumsy dismount. It was a good representation of their first meeting, I would say. <laughs> Later that week, quite early in the evening, I went for a walk alone. It was cold and huge clouds of mist clung to the ground. It was like walking through a dream, with the road ahead inviting and invisible. There must have been a turn in the road, for I saw nothing and heard nothing until it was upon me. And then out of nowhere there was a fearful clatter of hoofs and a man frantically shouting. Out of the way! And then both horse and rider crashed to the ground. What the devil do you mean by that? Oh, I'm so sorry. I must have frightened you, Horace. Can I do anything? Apologies won't mend my ankles. Stand out of the way. Oh, but you're hurt. I told you to stand aside. Oh, but I can't until I see that you're fit to ride. Where are you from? From Mr. Rochester's house, just below. Do you know Mr. Rochester? No, no, no. I've never met him. You're not a servant at the hall? I'm the new governess. The new governess? Yes. Well, if you're satisfied now that I've broken no bones, hand me my whip and get out of my way. Here. Thank you. Now, if you will kindly stand clear for a moment. Yes, sir, yes. And then, reverence? Ooh, no, once we have the negative message of religion, we kind of cut that out. Childhood scenes, not much, right? So how do we understand what she's gone through? What What type of person it has made her? We understand what she's gone through, but we don't know how she came out of it on the other side. We do know in part just that she she looks for the loveless, but she goes back to Lilwood. It's like she goes back to her abuser's arms. So I don't understand Jane, I think, as well as I should. Her relationships with those around her, I think, are developed pretty well with Brocklehurst. You can tell that that's not a positive one, but she takes that abuse and then returns again back to it. Her relationship with Adele is probably the best. Edward is touch and go. Definitely has the feeling of the novel when they have their nightly visits and that he is gruff with her and she takes it and gives it back and she's blunt and honest. With Fairfax, you can't really tell. So of the people they have, it's mostly, mostly, maybe like 50-50. How about that? 50-50 developed. We've got the conflict that tears Jane and Edward apart. Of course, it's Bertha. It's believable, yes. And then, of course, the big, well, I guess this isn't the big one, but can this adaptation stand alone or must you have read Jane Eyre? I believe that it can stand alone. I would say that it has the spirit of Jane, but the spirit is lacking, and it has the law of Jane, but the law is also lacking. Okay, and that is my coverage of the silence and the sound. So for first episode, still trying to eke out the feel of what I'm trying to do, but again, I want to give each adaptation a fair shake on its own. And of course, also compare it to its source material. I did lie a bit, only a bit though. I said I wasn't going to spend hours comparing them and saying this, this, and this happened. But I think in a certain way, I do need to do that. But what I've learned in this episode, I think the biggest thing I've learned 
is how important Helen Burns is. And it's really interesting how minor a character that is. Now, it's not like the carriage driver that takes Jane to Thornfield Minor, but she has a small portion of the novel. She meets a tragic end, but she is such an important factor in the formula that is Jane Eyre. And so I will be watching to see. I should have called this podcast the Helen Burns podcast because I think I could talk about it. I could write a paper probably on Helen Burns. So just I will be looking now because without Helen, the question then is how does Jane become who she is supposed to be? Or how does she become, you know, a woman who is able to love and is strong and has a firm Christian background and one that is not hypocritical or unbending? Okay, well, before I leave you, I did get some feedback from the previous episode. And I'm going to call feedback from the air waves. <laughs> so first, from Shagalicious, he says... Fantastic first episode. In full disclosure, I've never read Jane Eyre, though I have a foggy memory of reading the Cliff Notes back in the late 1980s for an English class, but can't be sure. That that's, that makes me sick, sir. Even without having read the book, your analysis is fascinating. It's a testament to your passion and podcasting skills that I listened to the entire episode and was completely engaged. Additionally, Dr. Renee Lappin was an excellent guest with really interesting insight on the character's motivations. After hearing Lappin's brilliant thoughts, I'll never make another your mama joke to Josh. You said she was likely your only guest on this podcast series, but I encourage bringing in more guests to add further perspective to the discussion. Fascinating. Yes, well, I will say before I continue that someone (laughs) just in passing mentioned me bringing on a religious leader to talk about (laughs) that uh, aspect of Jane Eyre, and I thought, well... That is actually a good idea, but I, I didn't have space carved out for that. I mean, it's only a limited series, but I'll consider it. Your descriptions of the book were so compelling that early in my listening, I'd convinced myself to finally read the book. Oh boy, I was all set to scour my local bookshops today and pick up a copy. Then you dropped the bomb that the book was 600 plus pages. Whoa, I walked back that decision quite a bit, and it's now on the someday list of books to read. I do have one contribution to the discussion. You reference Charlotte Bronte writing under a pseudonym. Sadly, in some ways, we haven't progressed that much further, even in our corners of geekdom. Dorothy Fontana was a television script writer starting out in the 1960s. She was one of the few female writers at NBC and therefore adopted the gender-neutral pseudonym of D.C. Fontana to prevent her pitches being prejudged based upon gender. She went on to become one of the most celebrated writers of Star Trek episodes. Staying in the Star Trek area, Trek novelist Anne Crispin chose the pen name of A.C. Crispin in the 1980s to prevent gender bias. L.A. Graff is another Trek novelist name who started in the 1990s, but is actually a pen name for a few female novelists working collaboratively. It's disappointing to see the gender bias is still a concern in the geek world. Lacking any history with the book myself, sadly, I don't have much else to add to the discussion other than to continue complimenting your passion and podcasting skills. Great job, and I'll be listening. Well, thank you, Shag. And Cisco did respond, come on, Shag, it's less than three Star Trek tie-in books, which I mean, he means the the page count. 
or wait for the Classics Illustrated episode, I guess. So yes, yeah, sometimes 600 pages is not for everyone. And it also depends on the type of 600 pages. And by that, I mean just the level of writing. And so this, it's not Dickens 600 pages, but it's also not your Star Trek or YA 600 pages. Next up from Chuck Coletta, he says, congrats on a top-notch first episode of this deep dive into Jane Eyre. I have a BA and MA degrees in literature from John Carroll University, and this brings me back to those days in class. It's a pleasure to hear someone so invested in a classic piece of literature. I'm currently teaching an undergrad course on contemporary popular lit, and it is very difficult to get the students to even read some of my selected short stories this semester. Great Scott, they're in college. Ugh, we have so many movie minute podcasts which are great fun, but this text-based podcast approach is something special. I read Jane Eyre many years ago, and I'm looking forward to all the insights of the various interpretations sure to come in future episodes. There's even a recent opera, which he did link to me, and I'm considering doing that one. I kind of had plans for it to pair it with something else, but I don't know. I just don't know much about opera. Well, I'll check it out, and then I'll see if I want to do a deep dive into it or not. Siskoid comes back and he says, always a fan of discussing various adaptations of a text. Listeners have been saved from a podcast version of my Hyperion to a, <laughs> a Seder blog where I went possibly way too deep into Hamlet and I registered no surprise that you aced the premiere episode. I would have been satisfied with episode one being just the first part's introduction, but then you throw a quality guest at us. Great stuff from Dr. Lappin. Never feel awkward about discussing religion when critiquing works written in an era where it wasn't much of a choice. What was Christianity in the place slash time and how it informs the text can be approached from an objective top view, divorced from modernity. If it's relevant, no need to dance around it. You'll find FW listeners are an open bunch of minds either way. Well, that's good to hear because I talked about it again in this episode. And then finally, Ryan Daly says, welcome to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Stella, hope you survive the experience. Yes, I'm hopeful that I survive it as well. Thank you all for writing in. You can always email me, remember, and all of these were actually on the actual episode post on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to an episode where things were not seen and not heard and also heard but not seen. <laughs> oh, boy. If you'd like to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Jane demands it, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts where you can make a one-time or monthly contribution and unlock various rewards, including getting name-checked on this or any network show of your choice. And perhaps even I, Jane, will bestow upon you the honor of being called Mr. Rochester. Support the network and harvest the good fruits. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever podcasts can be found. Send questions or comments to BatgirlToOracle at gmail.com, don't question it, and follow at BatgirlToOracle on Twitter. Thank you, dear listeners, for lending your ears to this show. And until next time, pray do read a book. His voice. Night after night, I started to hear it. Jane. Oh. 
Oh, I struggled to shut my ears from it, but I could not. Jane. It was like a soul in pain. A wild and urgent cry. Jane. More than I could bear. I would see him once again. Speak with him again, and after that, I neither knew nor cared what happened to me. All I knew was that I must go, and go quickly. I reached the estate, but Thornfield Hall was no more. Fire had destroyed it all. I was staring at the pile of charred and blackened rubble when Mrs. Fairfax saw me. She came running from the gardener's cottage. Jane, oh, my poor, poor girl. What happened? It was she who did it. She killed Grace Poole as she slept and set fire to Thornfield. Her laughing roused us. I ran to the nursery and carried Adele to the gardens. As I stood there, I heard the laugh again. She was on the roof. Mr. Edward was just coming from the house. He said nothing but turned and ran back into the flames. I saw him get to the roof and make his way toward her. She saw him, too. She ran to the edge and jumped. When we reached her, she was dead. And Edward, Edward, as he was coming down... The great staircase fell. He was badly hurt. Mrs. Fairfax? Uh, yes, sir. Oh. What the devil are you doing? Adele is waiting for her supper. I'm coming, sir. There's someone with you. Who is it? Who are you? His eyes. He's... He's blind. Edward. I've come back. Edward. Jane... Her small, soft fingers, her hair, her little, far-soft face. And her heart, too. Jane, all you can feel now is pity. I won't have your pity. Oh, Edward. You can't spend your life with the ruins of a man. You're young, so fresh. Don't, don't, don't send me away. Please, don't send me away. You think I want to let you go? Oh, my darling. As the months went by, he came to see the heavens once more. To see first the glory of the sun, and then the mild splendor of the moon, and at last the evening star. And then, one day, as our firstborn was put into his arms... He could see that the boy had his own eyes as they once were, large and brilliant. 